Welcome to Intuitive Bites Podcast. I'm your host, Kirsten Ackerman. I'm a registered dietitian specializing in intuitive eating and health at every size. I'm also the founder of the Intuitive RD, a project that aims to provide weight-inclusive nutrition education through workshops, online courses, retreats, written content, and private counseling. Join me as we explore the foundations of the non-diet approach to health and wellness and chat with leading professionals in the field. Hey guys, welcome to episode 12 of Intuitive Bites. For the episode today, I'm talking with Fiona Willer, who is a practicing dietitian in Australia. And we're chatting about the use of BMI as a metric in weight science research. Um, And Fiona has a lot of insight into this particular topic. Um, She's really great at breaking down research um, and, you know, really looking at it with a critical lens. Um, So I had a really great time chatting with Fiona about this topic. I think you guys are going to really like this episode. If you're not already following Fiona on Instagram, you can find her at Fiona Willer. So it's F-I-O-N-A. W-I-L-L-E-R, and I'll link to that below. Uh, Fiona also mentions a few other resources that you can use to find her as well towards the end of this episode today, Uh, and I'm going to link to those as well below. The only other thing I wanted to mention before getting into today's episode is if you are listening to this in real time, uh, I have a sale going on right now for my introductory introduction to intuitive eating online course so you can get it for ten dollars if you go on to the link in my the bio of my instagram um, and purchase the course by the end of the day today uh, on sunday the 16th so definitely go check that out if you're interested Uh, other than that let's just go ahead and, and listen to my conversation with fiona all right, Fiona. So um, thank you. Thank you again so much for, for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Of course. I'm really, really excited to talk with you about this, this topic of um, BMI um, as a statistic in research. Um, so kind of just to kind of lead right into it, um, I'm really interested in um, what got you interested in, you know, kind of questioning the use of BMI in, in research? Yeah, so, well, as a, so my background is as a dietitian, as is yours, uh, mm-hmm. but I also spent a long time as a lecturer in dietetics at one of our dietetics training universities here in Australia. And, uh, of course, the units that I was teaching included, you know, the, your, your big first-year nutrition units where we talk about the lifespan, we talk about all the nuts and bolts of nutrition, as well as the relationship between body weight and health. So that's, that is most dietitians' backgrounds. Mm-hmm. But when I started to do my PhD in this topic, which is far too many years ago now, and I still haven't quite mm-hmm. finished, I keep having children <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and getting sort of swept away with other things that I find very interesting, like podcasting and, you know, <laughs> being part of the Hayes community. Uh, anyway, it is almost finished. But Really, it was that process, and I knew because of my topic, which is basically the adoption of health at every size into dietetics practice and its application with dietetics clients, broadly what my topic is, Mm -hmm. Um, I had to really know the stuff. So I had to know all the traditional stuff, which I sort of already had a 
good inkling about, but I also had to really interrogate the weight bias that we have as a profession and by extension, the weight bias that we have in the research that we use as a profession. And the more and more you look into BMI, into how it came about, into um, how we ended up believing the things that we believe about BMI and contrasting that with how it's used in research. And I didn't really, you know, I knew the theory of it, but it wasn't actually until I started wading into having to do my, the stats on my own research data mm-hmm. where it really became apparent why we've got this sort of attraction to using BMI as a thing that we're interested in research wise mm-hmm. uh, and how it has stuck for so long. Obviously it, sh- it shouldn't have, it has major flaws, but there are properties of BMI which have made it so attractive to research, which I, I didn't fully realize until I had to crunch the numbers myself. Yeah. It's super interesting. Like kind of looking back, like in retrospect, like, when I was, you know, when I was a student and talking about BMI, it was just like, it was such a definitive thing. And it was such like, it wasn't questioned. And it was like, oh yeah, like, of course, like, this is just like how the world works. Like these, (laughs) here's here's the graph, here's the mortality graph. Here's the thing. This is, this is the relationship. Right. And then, then yeah. yeah. And another unit, I don't know how it is uh, in other dietetics training um, courses, but it, at our university and the university I went on to teach at, we taught that those relationships between weight and health and death and illness mm-hmm. in one subject, in one unit, and then it was a, another unit where we were doing epidemiology and research interrogation and those skills. And at least at our university, that epidemiology unit was not necessarily taught by people who had a background in nutrition science at our university, it was taught by uh, public health people and taught by statisticians. And so there wasn't really enough dovetailing of the content for us to be able to put two and two together in the whole storm of, you know, the, the training situation. It is really interesting. I mean, because I, again, looking back, I like, we were really, of course, encouraged to be critical with research and, you know, like really like push to do that. But there was never, like you're saying, like this connection um, between those two topics at all, yeah. you know? It would have been very handy while I was training to have been, to have had pointed out to me that the BMI and mortality risk graph is based on one lifetime weight and height data point and then their age at death. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Oh my that would gosh. have been actually very useful to know. And then you go, hang on a bit. I mean, my personal BMI has not been the same in my adult life. <laughs> and I'm only like, well, I'm, you know, 20 something years into my adult life. Right. But if I look at my parents, like their BMI has not been the same their whole adult, adult life. And so if you think about if the, the, um, the weight, their body weight was taken at when they were 25 mm-hmm. and then their age at death versus people whose body weight was taken at 50 and then their age a death. There are some statistical corrections that we do for that, but that does not actually then capture the fact that everyone's BMI, population-wise, we're looking at populations, there is a creep BMI-wise across the lifespan that's completely normal. It's nothing to do with Mm -hmm. having an overabundant food environment. 
it has everything to do with the fact that that is how human bodies age. Yeah. Which that itself, I think, is kind of mind boggling for most people to hear, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> like that itself is like, oh, really? Like, it, it's not supposed to be the same as my body's not supposed to say the yeah. same as, it, you know, as it was when it was 20 or whatever. Right. And it was one dude, Ansel Keys, whose name comes up time and time again. And he's done some great work that we really have got fantastic insights into starvation and the mm -hmm. human condition. But he, Ansel Keys was one of the main people uh, responsible for our, the way that we do the BMI categories, not having an age uh, difference because he said there's no reason why adults shouldn't be the same weight for their whole mm. life. Even when he was looking at the, the height and weight and mortality charts from the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company, all the stuff that was collected then that the BMI was basically derived from, just looking at the data which showed people who are older with extra weight have a lower mortality than people who are younger with what they deemed as, an, as extra weight. You know, like that relation, the age is very critical in terms of the relationship between body weight and death. Right. And, you know, even, and it's not corrected for lifestyle behaviours mm. or anything like that. But so what I'm saying is that the data that he was looking at contradicted his own personal views on, because he was quite a fat phobic person. Mm -hmm. uh, it, was, it was him and his persuasive personality that led to uh, the BMI um, categories being just a, a blanket uh, recommendation with no age or gender adjustment. So, you know, I was going to ask you, I guess, kind of just kind of broadly, like, so how did BMI, you know, become such a popular metric in, in research? Yeah. And this is really when it was. And what, what time period was this? Uh, so the, the data for the Metropolitan Life Tables was collected in the um, early 1900s and really put together okay. properly during the 50s and 60s. And you can still access those tables. And they basically... It was uh, gender or sex-based and uh, height, weight, age, and also build. So they had a, um, an extra characteristic in there. I can't remember whether it was sort of based on their shoulder girth or something. There was some other anthropometric mm -hmm. measure that they used to categorise people into sort of slight build, medium build, and larger build. Mm -hmm. And it's important also to recognise that even in those data sets, which suffer from the flaws that they were not a population representative sample. They were only people who they could get to through like work. It's a work-based uh, sampling. Okay. Yeah. So it suffers from, you know, the people that were in the workforce at that time. So <laughs> overrepresented by men, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> overrepresented by uh, men who work in, worked in white collar jobs, you know, people who were going to buy life insurance. It's, you know, the people mm. they were interested in. So it suffers from those things. But even at that point, the average BMI in that group was 25. Midpoint was 25. Wow. Uh, yeah, right? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> so the way that, you, that we've got this juxtaposition of what the population was like and then this judgment call over the top that pathologised virtually 50% of the population even back then based mm. on their categorisations. Um, so, and... I was just talking about the reason BMI has become so uh, big 
in yeah. this field, in the health field, yes. partly because of these very loud voices. So Ansel Keys, George Braid, people who are making decisions about what population health recommendations should be had at that time. And the World Health Organization was sort of coming into their own around that time period as well. And so the thing about BMI is <clears throat> statistically, it's a continuous measure. So it's a measure that is um, mm -hmm. sequential numbers and theoretically uh, goes to infinity. Do you know what mm -hmm. I mean? So Great. Numbers based, right? It's not naturally categorical like um, gender type or uh, mm -hmm. like pregnant, not pregnant. It, it is a measure that lends itself to this continuous uh, nature. So technically it should be considered, or it should always be used as a continuous measure. That means that you're limited to um, uh, some statistical test types. Mm -hmm. In order to be able to use other statistical test types, which lend themselves to ca categorical differentiation, um, <clears throat> they uh, broke it into categories. And basically they looked at that graph, you know, the one that we all know where you've got this slight dip and then a tick like the Nike swoosh of uh, mortality and BMI relationship. They looked at that and they went, okay, so um, we're in BMI, so we've got to make it, uh, you know, easy to use. So <laughs> as an aside, <laughs> any, any cutoffs which are in round numbers, that that means they're actually pretty arbitrary because human bodies are not actually designed with round numbers. Like on the, on the zero or on the five, you're like, there's a human who's decided that this is a cutoff. This is not a biologically derived cutoff here. Right. Um, anyway, so they've looked at that and gone, Oh yeah, it's about 25 is sort of the bottom lo lowest risk, the U part of the swoosh. Okay. And then we'll go like, oh, yeah, another five. And then we get up to like, we'll call that overweight. And then everyone over 30 will call obese. Um, and even George Bray back then classed people who were labelled as overweight as being uh, low, low risk in terms of mortality. It was only above the 30 BMI that started to become a higher mortality risk association. Hmm. And notice that we then, like as, as we become more and more fat phobic as a hmm. culture, the goalposts have shifted. So at that time, overweight was not seen as necessarily something that was bad. Right. Uh, but now we pathologise everyone who's over that 25 BMI. And that's not actually borne out by stats either. Anyway, so this is a, so we've got in the BMI swoosh, we've got about seven BMI points that are classed as the sort of normal category and then five classed as the overweight category. And then like up to 40 to 50 BMI points that are classed as uh, labelled as obese. So when you put that into a stats package, you're not actually, you're not comparing like chunk of population with like chunk of population. You're comparing a group of, the difference is seven, with a group of the difference is five, mm. with a group of the difference is 40. You are always going to find that there's a statistically significant difference between that larger group because they're much more different from each other than mm. when compared with the, the smaller you know, it's, it's, <laughs> that's really interesting. Yeah. Right. That's how you can, you can make a effect appear wow. that doesn't appear when you use it as a continuous measure by turning it into categorical. 
And you can look at that in other studies too. If they've used age group categories, have mm -hmm. a sniff around. Why have they done that and not used it as a continuous measure? If they've used age group where each of the chunks is the same increment of age, that's not necessarily too bad because that essentially becomes a continuous measure just mm -hmm. using categorical tests. But if they've used like a, uh, so with adulthood, if they've used sort of 18 to 30 and then they've got 30 plus, you're like, that's dodgy. What you're doing is changing the goalposts <laughs> in yeah. order to get a statistically significant um, uh, uh, test result. Wow. Right. And, and when we look at BMI, we know at face value that the people whose bodies are at like 29.9 BMI are virtually no different from the people whose bodies are at 31.1. Right. Right? Take, you like, eat a meal and you're up in a different category. <laughs> Go to the toilet and you're down <laughs> in a different category. And that's, like, pretty hopeless in terms of being able to differentiate people by using that sort of categorization. So you can see then BMI, because it is so useful statistically, because we can run it through continuous test uh, types of tests and we can run it through categorical test types of tests. It means that you can do a lot of different things with it and get cool results mm. that look cool right. but not necessarily fair given the clinical significance or insignific insignificance of the thing. Um, and it's, you know, like it, it serves a narrative that fat is bad. Mm -hmm you can use the categories like that because you're getting a statistically significant result. What, of course, what we should be using them as, so look, there might be something in it, but there's not something in it in a population level. We need to, needs to be individually um, assessed. And yes, perhaps that person does have a higher risk. So what are you going to do about it? What's, what extra screening are they going to get to make right. sure that if they do get some condition that is may well be related to their weight, may not be, and you can't tell in retrospect. Mm -hmm. <laughs> But perhaps it was, but how they're going to catch it early so it can be treated effectively and properly and so that they don't become another weight-related statistic, not because of the relationship between weight and their health, but because of the um, stigma that they have uh, encountered in the healthcare environment. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole, whole other yeah. can of worms, yeah. <laughs> um, let me ask you this. So um, I, what was your perspective on, you know, okay, so... In, in a perfect world, you know, everyone realizes that, okay, we shouldn't be using BMI and research. This isn't fair. It doesn't work. It's not really yielding good results um, or useful mm. results. What is the alternative? Like what, what would it be best for us to be focusing on in research and, you know, rather than BMI? Yeah. So, I mean, we know a lot about the relationship between BMI and health, but not a lot at the sort of granular detail level. We know broad associations, but that doesn't serve anyone. Mm -hmm. anymore um and we've like we yes there's a relationship on a population level when you don't adjust for anything else like great bully for you we've known that since the 50s can we move on now <laughs> what, we need, what we need to be doing is funding studies into uh treatments for people in larger bodies that are more effective than the treatments that we have so we need to find the treatments that are superior for each you know, if there is a relationship between weight and the effectiveness of treatments or medications or whatever, we need to find that out so that people can be given what they need at the time that they need it rather than being given 
this non-treatment, which is to, you know, try to go away and lose weight and just ignore that there might be any relationship there at all. So that's where the money should be going, is more effective, more client-centred ways to help people, uh, you know, across the weight spectrum. It doesn't serve smaller body people to be given a medication that's more effective than larger body people either. It's just that that is not that is not what tends to happen we have medications that are trialed in smaller people and then but not trialed properly in larger people so we're not aware of how to scale the medication properly if it is a dose response kind of medication Mm. we don't know of any contraindications you know it's not acceptable to be accidentally underdosing 65 percent of the population Mm. yeah how terrifying and just awful like that you know it's kind of assumed that okay if you're in a larger body like you're supposed to just work on reducing your weight so you can get the treatment that you know smaller body people are getting right that's (laughs) essentially what it is like yeah and it is um, i've talked about this before on other podcasts and i call it schrodinger's fat right so it is this state of being in a larger body where you are simultaneously the the person that has all the diseases you know in the in culture's mind existing at the same time as being the person who only ever receives weight loss as a recommendation for treatment for all the things that they're meant to have you know yes so it's a complete disconnect and it it is serviced completely by fat phobia and about this yes erroneous belief that a once fat person uh, in terms of risk, will be the same as a never fat person. Right. That's not. That's never the same. We really need another. In order to look at those relationships properly, we need another BMI category. People who were larger and who are now smaller. Let's look at their relationship between for mortality, for illness, and so forth. Because that's actually what we're asking people to do. Because they right. can't ever become a never fat person. So sure, yeah. So and there's got to be. There are reasons that their body they had the proclivity for their body to become larger. There are biochemical and metabolic reasons for that. Those things may need to be accounted for in the sort of treatments that they get. And we do, like I've read some studies looking at mortality and BMI where they have removed people (laughs) who have lost weight (laughs) because it messes up their stats right oh my god people in particular though you could tell that they're so aggravated i just love reading research <laughs> because <laughs> like they don't mask their abrogate uh, their um how aggravated they are about things it's just an academic speak i just find it delightful <laughs> like there's so much sniping that goes on between research centers that it's all out it's in there in the papers that's, that's super interesting. Interesting. <laughs> I mean, it's terrible but it is also hilarious it's mm-hmm. a tragic comedy of, of academia but um so there's one particular paper where they're looking at mortality and bmi and they've noticed that people who had um now they worked out that they had intentionally lost weight so that was that was good that's how I ended up my eyes ended up on the paper because I was interested in looking at that relationship that intentional weight loss versus mortality thing there's my suspicions and my reading of the research is people who have been larger and lost weight their uh their mortality is more like their original BMI category than like the BMI category that they end up in and this research team had realised the same thing and it had annoyed them to the point where they had removed them because they were messing up the numbers. 
because they, wow. their, their, the narrative of their uh, paper was let's look at how much healthier lower weight people are than larger weight people. And when you've got larger weight people who have shrunken or suppressed themselves mm-hmm. weight-wise into a lower weight category, that, that worsens their, the weight BMI relationship, so they took them out so that they could just see the relationship between those people who were always in the smaller weight category and mortality. I'm like, you guys, you, it's wow. right there. Oh, yeah. Can you not see the narrative that you're running? Oh, Can you my not gosh. see the contradictions in there that your narrative is about trying to make people be smaller and you've literally taken out, taken the, out the people who became smaller. <laughs> because... Oh it was. It didn't suit. It didn't suit what your bias was. Oh, I just, that's horrifying. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> oh God. Oh, on that note, um, Fiona, I want to ask you um, one last thing. Just kind of uh, your advice to somebody who is, you know, digging through some of this research and trying to, you know, trying to understand it and be critical. Yeah. Um, what would you say to to somebody in that boat right now? I would say that the way that we're trained to read research papers and the way that we're trained to revere the words of the academics <laughs> writing the research <laughs> is not borne out by reality. And if so, if you want to be able to read research papers properly, you don't start with reading the conclusion because the conclusion is where the authors can just run their what they want to happen. It's the least reliable part. Of the entire paper you need to be across research methods and read you need to read the intro like what were they after then the methods how did they do it and know enough to know whether the way that they went about the research was the correct way to answer their question and that is actually easier than it sounds it sounds quite technical the way I'm saying it now but when you're like oh, what was the research what what were they after and you can either read the introductions, can be quite long, or you can read literally the paragraph before the methods section that will tell you what they were doing, what they wanted to find out. Read the methods section, read the results, and see whether it had any bearing on the question that they asked. Mm-hmm. Read the discussion and get an idea about it. And the last thing you read is the conclusion. Yeah, so read because the meat of the paper, right? Read the meat because yeah. they're not, you cannot rely on the research team to be objective about their own research findings, uh, particularly because, like, it's, it's subconscious. I'm not accusing everyone mm-hmm. of research malpractice. It's, but it's what happens when you've got, you ask a question, you're really invested in that question. And if your data doesn't quite answer your question in the way that you thought it would, you've got an opportunity in the conclusion to pontificate about why. <laughs> right. And so that, that's what makes the conclusion the least reliable part of the whole thing. Yeah. And I think that's important to note because, of course, I, I think a lot of people, you know, jump over there because <laughs> it's, it's uh, yeah. I don't know, it's easier to read or you kind of want yeah. to get the point of it. <laughs> you yeah, <know>? exactly. <laughs> uh, and it's, it is literally how we're taught to read them yeah. too. That's how you read any of the like how to read research papers mm-hmm. uh, tutorial <laughs> stuff. It's like skim over, like read this bit, skim over that, skim over that. Look at the conclusion if you don't have much time. Like yeah. whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> like that might be okay in other fields, right. but in any research that's related to weight or health or human behaviour, yeah. it's not enough. 
we need to properly interrogate the papers. And if you're not quite sure what you're reading, put it up in, a, particularly for registered dietitians, put it up in one of your Hayes Facebook groups. Someone mm. will help you piece the thing, like pull it apart. Yeah. And it will help everyone to watch yeah. that process happen. So don't feel that you have to do it alone either. Because, I mean, I, did yeah, not, yeah. I was not born knowing how to do this stuff. It took a lot of work to do it. But I'm absolutely happy to help people We're in the groups that I'm in. If somebody brings a paper and says, what, is this, I'm reading it this way. Is that actually the thing? And then lots of other people hop on and go, well, they did this, 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 this. here are all the things. We've yeah. got so many very clever people in dietetics. It's true. Who are also very generous with their mm-hmm. labours. And so, and whenever that plays out in a, in a um, discussion board where people can, you know, read what happens, not necessarily participate, that actually helps everyone, brings us all up. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I would encourage people to, to do that, ask questions. And also if you know, if you've got skills in that field, to, to be involved mm-hmm. in discussions too. Oh yeah, I love that. And I, I also know that you have, is it a podcast? And then you also have your newsletter? Yeah, so I do a few things. All of it is Hayes related. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I have a free newsletter, which is weekly. Um, and that's essentially made up of all of the articles that I've shared or uh, and social media posts that I've made relating to Hayes and weight science stuff over the previous week. Um, that's free. It's got well over a thousand subscribers now. It only started in January. So it's clearly people are enjoying the Mm -hmm. sort of content that's on there. Um, so that's a good way to start to dip into this stuff. Not only weight science, it's also got some really great, uh, you know, I, I will share things around feminism and I will share things around bodily autonomy and I share things around, uh, science in general that I find interesting. That's within the sort of realm of the body autonomy, health, Mm -hmm. Uh, lifestyle related and weight stigma related stuff Um, so that's free and I've got a professional podcast professional development podcast called unpacking weight science where uh, again it's like 20 to 30 minute podcast similar to yours where I Mm -hmm. unpack uh, particular elements of weight science or uh, discuss Hayes concepts or discuss measurement tools to use in your practice and all that sort of stuff so really like helpful professional development stuff stuff that I would have wanted when I was starting out and also stuff that I'm using in my PhD research now so there's a there's a nice little there like if I have to do stuff a particular measurement tool in my research I'm like bugger it I'm gonna I'm gonna podcast about this because it helps me with my writing as well right um so there's there's that that's five dollars a month on on Patreon and you get the podcast the audio uh, but also supporting materials further reading um, the show notes and self test quiz with the answers so you can use it as assessed oh, professional awesome. development certainly Australian dietitians can and there are other dietitians uh, in the international community whose uh, credentialing bodies will allow that as as uh, assessed professional development. Um, But if you like an online course, I've got that as well, also called Unpacking Weight Science, um, a self-paced course. That's for all professions and anyone who's interested in knowing more about their doctor than about weight than their doctor does. (laughs) And and then I've got all my usual health, not diets resources, which is essentially training in the non-diet approach for dietitians and psychologists. So, yeah. Awesome. You've got so many resources. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> oh, I love it. I will I'll find the links to those two and I'll make sure people can find them. That's great. great. 
Um, <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much, Fiona. This has been awesome. Thanks. I appreciate thank it. Thanks for having me. It's been really great. Thanks. Oh, <laughs> all right, guys, that is a wrap on this week's episode. As I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, if you're interested in my introduction to intuitive eating course, it is currently on sale through the end of the night tonight, which is September 16th. So you can find the link for that over in uh, the bio of my Instagram. For more information on Fiona Willer, I'm going to link below to some places you can find her. Um, but definitely on Instagram, you can find her at Fiona Willer. And the last thing I'm going to note before wrapping up today is if you have a moment and you haven't already, um, if you can go over to iTunes and rate the podcast, let me know what you're thinking of it, what else you'd like to hear, any of those things, that would be awesome. And it only takes a couple of seconds um, and it really, really does make a difference. So that is all I'll say on that for now. Um, but I hope you all have an awesome week and I'll talk to you soon. Bye.